Welcome to Global Security and Protection Group Podcast with your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with industry practitioners and security thought leaders. Welcome, everyone, to the Global Security and Protection Group Podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. Today marks episode one, and I cannot think of a more fitting guest to join us today than Michael Trott. Mike is an accomplished and very well-respected protective security practitioner with more than 30 years of combined military, government, corporate, and private sector experience. He honorably served in the United States Air Force as a security specialist before his service as a special agent in the CIA. He has worked for Fortune 100 corporations, protected high net worth families, and is the current vice president of global security and safety at Discovery Land Company. Throughout the years, Mike has held several senior positions and has operated in over 90 countries. Mike is the author of The Protected, which provides readers with a rare behind-the-scenes view into the world of executive protection. In his book, Mike highlights his own journey as an international security professional and shares stories that exhibit the hard work and dedication necessary of those who serve in the ultimate service industry. And with all of that said, Mike, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the program on our debut episode. Ron, thank you very much for the introduction and congratulations on launching the podcast. And I wasn't aware that I was your first, but wow, that's a, that's a privilege. So thanks for having me. You're welcome, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Now. Your story starts as a young airman in the United States Air Force. What drove or inspired you to join the military, and specifically the U.S. Air Force? Well, good question. Um, definitely have to go back uh, a few decades to think about that one. Uh, I think, you know, I came from sort of a military family in that sort of context, and I, I think a lot of people who serve, it's either one or the other. You, you've had no reference to the military, and that just is kind of a way out, or you've served uh, or you've seen your family serve. So I had a, uh, my father was a, an army veteran and a Korean war veteran. Um, I had three uncles who were in, they were in World War II. Uh, and my grandfather was in World War One. So I think part of it is just kind of where I grew up and how I was raised and seeing that and knowing that probably the military was more than likely going to be in my future. Uh, an ironic twist, uh, when I graduated high school, myself and three other a gentleman, we were going to join the Army together and go into what they called a buddy program at that time. And we wanted to go into uh, the Airborne and kind of, uh, you know, we were obviously all, all pent up and ready to go have some fun. So uh, the day we were supposed to go to the recruiter and the MEP station and sign up and go in, I was the only one that showed up. <laughs> so my, my three compadres left me hanging. Uh, and We've laughed about that over the years. But anyway, so I remember calling my dad and I was like, hey, you know, the guys didn't show up. What do I do? And it was interesting through those previous years of thinking about going into the military. My dad was like, you know, I totally support you going in. But if you're going to go in, my personal preference, I'd like to see you go in the Air Force or the Navy. So that was in the back of my mind. Um, and then when that day happened, uh, my dad was like, hey, you know, why don't you take a pass on signing up right now and come home and let's talk about it. So anyway, a little bit of a mentorship from my father and he steered me in the direction of the uh, of the Air Force. And, uh, you know, even though I spent the 10 years in the Air Force, I think I probably spent about as much time in the Army just based on my role as a security specialist. And especially once I was overseas in the 80s, um, I, I was a ground combat instructor and I started getting into specialized skills and teaching as an instructor and a lot of combat related stuff. So I spent about as much time in the Army training and going through their courses. Uh, so I kind of got the best of both worlds. But uh Anyway, that's kind of the background where, where it all started. Well, Mike, if that's not a classic example of being hung out to dry, then I don't know what is. <laughs> right. I've never really forgiven them. <laughs> I would imagine not. I'm sure they owed you a couple rounds after that stint. At least a couple. <laughs> so it was in the United States Air Force that you were first introduced to the world of protective security. Was there a particular experience that set you on the protective security path? Did you have a mentor that served as a catalyst for your decision? Really all three of those. That's, that's a good, interesting uh, sort of observation there. So during the, uh, at the time, I was kind of serving in the capacity as a, a special weapons and tactics uh, team leader and instructor. Um, and a lot of that kind of work, we were also close to the OSI, the Office of Special Investigations. And um, so that relationship 
kept us close to what some of the things that the OSI does in terms of their investigations, but they also handle the protective operations, uh, the PSO work for the Air Force. Uh, in the Army, they call it the you know PSD details, the, the protective service details, and NCIS has their own. Um, but the Air Force under OSI uh, does all the protective operations work. And because of the relationships we had, and then I had a close relationship with them, um, around 1988-89, uh, a particular terrorist organization group called the Red Army Faction was pretty hot and heavy for a couple of decades. And they had assassinated quite a few people in that, in that time period. And in a roundabout way, without getting into too many details, um, the BND, the German intelligence, raided a safe house that the Red Army Faction was using. And they had a hit list of individuals they wanted to, to attack. And uh, Alfred Herrhausen, the German banker, was number one on their list. And the general who was the commander of the largest military community outside of the U.S. in Kaiserslautern, Germany, was also on that list. So as you can imagine, uh, you know, all, all hands on deck of what do we do to provide better protection for this general who was moving about off base quite a bit through communities throughout central Germany. Um, so there was a call to put together a more robust protective team for him. Um, and I was asked to, to be a part of that team. And so that kind of brought me into that close protection world, uh, which is not something you typically see in, in the military. It's, you know, it's not, not what they, there's not what you think about when you think about the military, but there's an, there's an element to all the branches that do that kind of work. And that was my first time to see uh, where this could go. And even though we're doing it from the military, obviously you're thinking, okay, what happens after this? What happens after the service? Is there is it private sector? Is it government? It was really new to me. Uh, that's how it started. And then I did have a mentor. Um, and I speak about him in the book quite a bit. Um, Colonel Harris was a a figure who helped me figure out my life, if you will, after the military and kind of set things in motion for me to go over to the CIA. But he had an interesting background and in, in history uh, in the intelligence service as well. And he was a mentor of mine, even though he was a colonel and I was a, an enlisted gentleman. He uh, kind of took me under his wing and kind of led me down to a path that probably led me to where I'm at today, to be quite honest. But um, I have a lot of appreciation uh, for that colonel. Well, Mike, I love that you mentioned your father as a source of inspiration and just now your mentor in the military. And I have to say, and you'll probably agree, there's nothing better than a great father and a good mentor to get you on your way. Hundred percent. I do enjoy giving back as where I can. I think you know, you're hitting on something. There's probably a reason why I do it. I think it comes honest to me, but I do like helping other people uh, in terms of trying to figure out that transition. And there's a lot of really good individuals that you can follow now uh, through LinkedIn and different places. I can think of a couple of gentlemen. Uh, Scott Walker is a friend of mine, a former Army and Navy, but he does a transitional uh, podcast as well to help you know veterans who are transitioning out of the military how to transition into private sector. And um, I mean, he, he's hot and heavy into it. And um, I applaud guys like that are willing to step up and help others figure out that transition because it can be difficult. Mike, you're absolutely right. And to your point, it can be just so difficult for somebody trying to make their way through it. I just think it's so cool that there are people out there like Scott who are trying to share this information and, and help people navigate right through these doors. We're going to have to try to get him onto the podcast because I truly believe that this transition, whether it's from military or law enforcement into the private sector arena, you know, it's just so important because on one half of the coin, you've got people who are really trying to navigate their way through it. And then on the other half, you've got these individuals like yourself and Scott who've made their way through the door and are working so hard themselves to get back and help others get through it as well. hundred percent. And, and you, you can take advantage of lessons learned. I, you know, a lot of us have had our bumps and bruises along the way. And if we can help you help guide you through some of that and what to avoid hundred uh, percent. And I've, I've been blessed and had a unique opportunity to go from the military to the agency, to corporate, to private sector. And each one of those are incremental transition points because the agency was very similar to the military and we kind of operated the same way. And a lot of us on the teams were former military. So it was easy. And then I went to work for a company that uh, just happened to be quite a few of us were from the agency and some of us have served in the service. So you still speak the same language and have that same camaraderie. And then it kind of was easier to transition into private sector. But if I had to go from the military straight into some sort of private sector job, I, I would have been the bull in the China shop for sure. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I would be very interested in hearing more about what that experience was like if we have time to circle back today. But I would also like to hone in a little bit more on your time and service in Germany. And I, I think it'd be fascinating for our listeners to hear today what it was like to serve during such a pressure-packed environment when tensions ran so hot between East and West Germany. It was a fascinating time, I've got to be honest. Now, you got to think, too, I was, what, 25, 26, 27, 28 years old. So, um, yeah, being in the military, you know, you're, you're still definitely, you knew it was the Cold War. I mean, we had a lot of exercises and training that were uh, you know, replicating an all-out war with Russia. And uh, so the exercises we would have and the chemical weapons attacks and the nuclear attacks and, you know, those things were serious. And uh, you trained hard, you, you prepared hard. And uh, even as a young, you know, whether well, it was a young airman or you know, we had we had the aerial defense artillery on the base from the Army and you know, different other organizations around us. Uh, it was a fascinating time. I really enjoyed it. And you did feel the tension in, in the um, in the air regarding the political because at that time. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan was president and we're, you know, we're, we're listening to the speeches and we're feeling that there's a change in the air. Something's coming. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the East Germans were, as well as the West Germans, were anticipating some sort of change. I'm sure it was excitement from both sides because, you know, I think there was a reunification uh, desire, but also nobody knew exactly what that was going to look like. And I remember, you know, when the wall was torn down, you started having this just you know, large numbers of East Germans coming into <laughs> to, to West Germany. It's funny now, but I can remember you'd see, they call them the Trabis, these little little small East German cars that are basically made out of plywood and the top speed's about 45 miles an hour. So if you can imagine these cars on the Autobahn, you know, everybody's driving 110, 130 miles an hour. It's like, holy cow, they were just having wrecks left and right, you know, people running into these cars. Uh, but it was a fascinating time, obviously, from the intelligence and the protection, there was a lot of you know, the protection world. There was a lot of changes going on. And anytime you have uncertainty, you know, you, your your awareness is a little higher. So we didn't know exactly what does this mean now that we've got, you know, the wall is down. So now we have you know, East German spies, Russian spies on both sides, kind of a little bit more easier uh, flow. Where do we go now? I mentioned a Red Army faction. You know, I had a poster in my office where the German police had put out looking for most wanted of, of the uh, Red Army terrorist group. And after the Berlin Wall you know, came down, some of these uh, terrorists were hiding out in East Germany. So they started putting rewards on it. So if you can imagine if you're an East German and now you're able to flee and you know your neighbor might be the individual on this poster and you're going to give me, you know, a uh, hundred thousand or fifty thousand Deutschmarks. <laughs> I could use that money to start my new life. So you started almost weekly. I was crossing off people off this list, and it it went pretty fast. They pretty much rounded up all the Red Army faction uh, terrorist members pretty quickly. But yeah, definitely interesting time, fascinating time. A lot of moving parts. You know, for me going from you know military, getting into the OSI, putting a suit and tie on, and eventually I was asked to go work in an undercover position for uh, a narcotics team. And now I'm letting my hair grow out. And so it was a very fascinating time for a you know, 27, 28, 29-year-old. Oh, Mike, it sounds like it was just a fascinating time indeed. And while I've got you here, I want to uh, mention one of the portions of your book in which you detail one of these training scenarios. And uh, while I'm not going to spoil the contents described in your book, for those who haven't read it yet, I will say that you had me completely sucked in <laughs> as I was reading, thinking that this was a real life scenario at play. And that was until out of nowhere, seemingly, you threw in the words, terminate, terminate, terminate. And I really think that speaks volumes to the level of dedication that you and your team had to develop and conduct training exercises that played so close to the threat environment that you guys found yourself serving in. That's too funny. I've had quite a few emails about that. Like, you dog, you know, I, I thought that really happened. Um, yeah, no, you know, training is, you're right. You know, and whether you're, you know, whether you're from the SEAL groups or, you know, SEAL teams or one of the other military units, if you're not operationally doing something, you're training and you're training hard. And you know, if you think about the special forces in general, whether it's the, you know, the, the Rangers or Green Berets or Marine Recons or uh, the SEALs or the Air Force Pararescue and, 
and uh, CCT teams, if you're not deployed, you're training. You're training hard. And as we have unfortunately seen each year, we lose a lot of people to to accidents, dying in training. Um, you know, we just had a, a SEAL that uh, passed away after you know his hell weeks. And I don't know the details exactly what happened, but it happens all the time. Uh, it's unfortunate. It shouldn't. But when you're pushing the envelope of trying to train as realistically as you possibly can, uh, you know, it's important, number one, that you do that, but the risk factors are there. So you really have to be careful when you do that and have the right application and right process involved to make sure that everybody comes back from that training alive and um, you don't make those kinds of mistakes. But no, very realistic. Um, you know, whether these big exercises or the small exercises, that's, I think, again, that's how you get better and better at what you do. Whether you're playing sports or whatever it is, it's practice, practice, practice. So, uh Training is a big part of what we what we did in the military. Absolutely, Mike. And to your point, consistent and reputable training is just so important to maintaining the proficiency necessary to then operate at a high level in the field. And I'd like to ask you another question that's related to the book in which you describe the executive protection umbrella and go on to outline the various individuals who are affected by or involved within it. What prompted your desire to address all these different players in the EP umbrella? And I got it handed to you. There's a lot of these players that you address in your book. Also, what was your intent behind writing the book in general? And what perspective do you hope readers gain from this work? I think when I started with my the first intention, and you do, as I've said before, you kind of wake up after you know 20 years or a couple of decades, and you're like, you know what? I've been doing the same thing for quite some time. I've, I've learned a few things. I've made a lot of mistakes, learned some lessons, and and I was a former instructor in the military, and so that sort of nature comes out, and you want to share those experiences. I don't want to just hold them in. If I can help somebody else, great. Uh, it's obviously not to, to write a book to make money because that's usually the last thing you do when you write a book. Um, I don't represent a company. I'm not providing services per se, so I'm not trying to lead readers into, please call me because I'm going to provide something for you. That's not the reason why I wrote the book. So when I thought about the theory of writing a book, I thought, you know, all the books that I've read about executive protection or, or this particular area, the one seems to be the one audience member who's missing in the conversation are the principals themselves, which how ironic is that? Those are the individuals we're protecting. But our conversation is really never includes them into the conversation. So, so my thought was I wanted to write the book and speak to the principals themselves, just as if I was visiting a principal and, and they had questions about, you know, do I need protection or how do we do this? I'd want to sit down with them and just kind of have a very open conversation. Let's understand who you are and what your risk factors are and what kind of life do you live and what do you, what's your biggest fears or concerns and kind of dive into that. So as I thought about sort of crafting the book that way, um, I realized there are other people who influence that protectee. It's going to be the spouses. It's going to be family members. It's going to be attorneys. It's going to be maybe the CSO of that new company. Um, it's going to be so many other members. If it's a board, the individual sits on a board, it may be the attorneys saying you will have protection uh, because you're a critical component of the company. So now there's a kind of a mandate or requirement. And then, so you have all these people that are, you know, loosely or, or tightly connected to this program or this protectee. And then the actual practitioners, the people that are going to do this work. So I couldn't have a conversation with all of these individuals and not include the practitioners. And then you have what I would consider the older practitioners and the up-and-coming practitioners. And, and their perspective is different. And their sort of um, experience level is different. So, and it's, Ron, you, you, you kind of hit on a, a very important part there for anybody else who wants to write a book like this. Uh I remember talking to my first editor and he was like, dude, you got you to figure out who your audience is. <laughs> you got too many people you're talking to. And it's that's a hard book to write. It's two or three books, uh, but you got too many audience members. And I totally, totally get that. But I also told myself, I'm not writing two more books or three books. It's it's going to get it's going to get all weaved together into this. Um, so that was the. You know, that was the history, that's the, you know, the desire, the intent. And then I had to find a way to weave this all together that made sense. And, you know, I don't provide the backstories about necessarily about me or some of my experiences to talk about Mike Trot because that's not the point. 
but my experiences are the same experiences of other guys and, and, and ladies that do this work. And they've all got similar stories in a background. But I wanted those stories to be told to relate to the principle. This is who we are. This is where we come from. This is how we got our training. This is why we got into the business. This is why when I say I'm concerned about this, there's a reason for it. Here's a story related to a scenario that could help you understand where I'm coming from. So, yeah, it, to be honest, it was a very complicated book to write because you're trying to put a lot into one book. Uh, but thanks for asking that question because it was uh, a big part of the <laughs> learning process. Well, Mike, I got to say, and this comes from somebody who's notorious for falling asleep at 30,000 feet while traveling by air. Um, I could not put your book down. And that's where I did most of my reading while on the airplane. No matter how tired I was, I just continued to flip page by page because uh, it's just such an intricate read and your stories are just so intriguing. And you're right, the book is woven together in such a unique way. And really, no matter whether you're a protector or you're the protected, you know, you can really find various portions of the book to be so valuable because it'll give you this insight and allow you to step into the shoes of somebody you may have an entirely different perspective from. I appreciate that. And perspective is important. I appreciate that. That's so true, Mike. And your book just does such a good job highlighting the different perspectives. And with that said, I'd like to you know highlight another portion of your book in which Quoting here, you state, policies and procedures help establish an operational foundation and maintain consistency, but it is still important to recognize that EP encompasses more elements of an art than it does a science. Can you elaborate on this balance between art and science and how these differences really between each principle, every family, each individual's risk appetite in contrast to the threat environment that they're living in has a direct impact on the type of protection that they actually receive? Um. As I say, it's kind of a rabbit hole <laughs> conversation you can dive into. But if you break it apart, you know, you have sort of what we call best practices. And they're, they're proven concepts and principles of protecting a person. And let's just say we focus on protecting an individual. Um, so there's a methodology to it. Uh, there's a process. And it's usually a risk base. You know, you have individuals who truly need a level of protection uh, because of their exposure based on their position. So let's just say they are a high-level, high-profile uh, CEO or, or a senior executive of some company or, or the government. So what does that mean? Just because you are doesn't mean it comes with a risk. So what's the risk factors that come around the company that you work for, the position that you represent, uh, or the stance that you may take that's high-profile? Uh, or it could be a celebrity. Um, it could be an athlete. So you really have to dive into each individual differently. There's not one size fits all approach to this. Every principle is different. Even though there may be similarities, the nuances are different. You could take two, um, two individuals who are at the same level in terms of a corporate position as CEO, perhaps, but their personal relationships with others are going to be different. Their activities may be different. Maybe one is really a reader, stays at home. Family person uh, doesn't travel that much. And the other one, CEO, is into all kinds of uh, outdoor activities and sports and high-risk sports and high-risk activities. So the way you're going to approach building that program is going to be different for each one of those individuals who serve in a very similar capacity or position. So it is a little complicated. Uh, it's a process that we drive through and, and try to figure out the right approach. But you kind of touched on something that the principle is equally as important to this conversation. They have to be part of the conversation because they're going to inherit a program that might put some limitations on them or put some restrictions or at least could make their day activities a little more complicated. Our program shouldn't be designed to do that. We should be designing a program that allows our principal to still do their job without too much interference. But again, you're on it goes back to the risk factor. If I'm protecting a high-risk principal as a cabinet-level official who's flying in and out of high-risk areas of the world and war zones, obviously that detail is going to be much different than a, a CEO that is, is a, a good person, represents a good company. It's not a lightning rod for bad press, uh, but maybe there's just a requirement that that person have a little bit level of extra awareness around him and physical protection. Those two details are going to be so vastly different. But, uh, you know, this can take a few weeks of really diving deep, as we say, and peeling back the onion to figure out what is at the core of our protection for this individual. And the better we get it right, 
I think the better it's received by by all involved. Oh, well, Mike, I mean, to your point, you hear these horror stories from principals who have been completely left out of the cold during the decision-making process and then have to deal with a bunch of surprises later on. And I mean, it just ends up creating a bunch of angst for all the parties involved on these security details. To your credit, you've done a wonderful job in this book of articulating why it's important to bring the principal into the fold and explain to them and educate them on some of the restrictions that they may encounter because of the threat assessment as it relates to their security environment and whether or not they would like to assume some of those risks and maybe have a little bit more freedom or consciously make the decision to have those restrictions in place. And Mike, before we continue on this topic, and it's been a fascinating discussion to have with you, we're going to take a brief break and listen to a message from today's sponsor, Progressive Force Concepts out of Las Vegas, Nevada, a company that you're very familiar with, Mike, and the team over there, and they've had nothing but good things to say about you. So everybody sit back, relax, and we'll be back in a minute. Progressive Force Concepts LLC, a.k.a. PFC Training, prides itself on breaking free of traditional paradigms by forging ahead with simplified and highly effective proprietary training. For military, law enforcement, government, and protective services personnel, PFC has provided protective services and training extensively to Fortune 100 companies and industry-leading executive protection teams since 2004, making PFC uniquely qualified to deliver best-in-class protective operations instruction. Join PFC for an 18-day Academy of Protective Studies in the National Capital Region from May 2nd to May 21st. Visit the PFC Training website for more information. All right, howdy, everybody, and welcome back to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Once again, we are joined by today's guest, Michael Trott. He is the VP of Global Security and Safety at Discovery Land Company and the author of The Protected, a book about the world of executive protection. Now, Mike, continuing where we left off just a moment ago, we were kind of discussing the difference in protection styles based upon a low profile and a high profile protectee. Now, for those listening who have not yet read your book, Mike, you served on the protective team of former CIA director George Tenet. And while he fits into both categories, certainly a high-level protectee based upon his title, but also a low protectee, because certainly at the time, most of the people in the country really wouldn't even know him by name, let alone appearance. And really, I'm curious, could you explain the way in which your team operated to the extent that's appropriate in an unclassified setting, and perhaps how it differed from the more in-your-face and highly resourced Secret Service model that protects the President of the United States? It is different, you know, to your point. Secret Service has, uh, I'm not going to say an unlimited budget, but they have a very large budget, as they should, to protect the, uh, the President and Vice President. At the time, George Tenet was also a cabinet-level official, and that's not always the case as a CIA director. But at this time, President Clinton didn't make him a a member of the cabinet. So while his um, level of notoriety was a little bit higher than than maybe other CIA directors at that time, um, he's also a second, I think, longest-serving director. So he had some notoriety that began. Sometimes a director may come in for a year, two years, and they're in you know, one door and out the other door. So, but for somebody to be around five, six, seven, eight years, it doesn't take long to know who the CIA director is. And then we're talking, you know, pre 9-11 and post 9-11. Um, so the complications that come with a an organization that's kind of at the tip of the spear, along with some of our special forces to be going after uh, Osama bin Laden and some of the others that were behind the 9-11 attack, you automatically put the CIA at a higher level of recognition now, and then who's leading that particular charge um, and the meetings and the, the interviews that you would see at the White House. Um, you know, Mr. Tennant was very intimately involved in all of that. So for sure, his profile was much higher than we would have liked as a CIA director, but um, he had a mission and we had our mission. And our mission is to protect the guy who's got the mission to lead this kind of uh, assault, if you will, back against Al-Qaeda and those that uh, that came after us. So it is more challenging uh, for the reasons I just laid out, you know, outlined there. And But the methodologies, the concepts, the principles uh, are all the same. We might have had a little bit more resources coming in at that particular time because the risk factors changed. And, you know, I won't get into the specifics of, of numbers at that particular time to protect the director, but we had to significantly increase that, uh, if you will, both uh, nationally and internationally. 
as you would expect. There's no sort of a secret there. But it is a challenge. Uh, you know, obviously, talking about the protection for someone like that, uh, whether it's the president or, or any other high-level official, um, you know, we're under certain rules and regulations of what we can't speak about, even though I've since left the agency. And as you would have known by reading this book, I still had to submit this book to the um, to the CIA Publication Review Board to, to get their approval. And so got to be careful what I say, and it's, it's for the right reasons. We don't want to release uh, tradecraft and uh, things I shouldn't talk about. But to your point, it is going to be different uh, protecting someone like, you know, the director of the CIA versus, um, uh, you know, a, a celebrity or, or any other kind of principal. Um, but at the same time, unless that principal uh, has extremely high risk or the budget and the appetite for what goes with it, uh, it's expensive. You're talking millions of dollars to protect somebody at the same level you would a, a government official, as an example. Um, so now we're getting into the, the programmatic aspects of, a, of building something like this, and budget's always going to be a big one, uh, and then how we approach that. Kind of a complicated response, but it's a fun process to, to dive through. Mike, it seems like it was such an interesting time to be at CIA and to especially take part in a protective security expansion to better protect the director. And speaking of, George Tenet has written his own book titled At the Center of the Storm, in which he details his experience as director of CIA. And I think that just pairs so well with your book because it really gives a perspective of both sides of the coin from the protector as well as the protectee. And every time I read these biographies of high-level executives or government officials, I'm often able to revert back to my own experiences working on staff for a variety of high-profile bosses and how I was just always blown away at just how busy these individuals were and how little they slept on a consistent basis. And now from a protection perspective, how you maintained your physical and mental readiness while keeping up with such an intense operational tempo during your time on the detail. You know, that's uh, it's another good topic. And that's, that's one to spend a lot of time on because we don't do a good job of that always. Um, and part of it is because your, your mission, you know, centered. Your, your mindset is um, maybe working at the agency or working at an organization like that for some of us is a little bit more of a, I don't want is it an honor maybe? You know, it's a, it's a, it's not a challenge, but you feel like you're uh, you're motivated every day to raise the flag to do a job. It's just the same way we felt in the military. Um, we're sometimes in private sector. You know, after you after you've had four days of 15, 16 hour days, you may rethink your job and your career. Uh, but at the at the agency, I will say I can speak for most of the guys that I was around. You know, we were putting in some ungodly amount of hours. Um, post 9-11 that you, to your point, you do at some point in time, just hit the wall and it's not safe. It's not safe for, for you. And it's not safe for the principal or the team. Um, as you can imagine, you're, you're carrying weapons. Uh, you're, you're, you're moving fast and furious. You're, you're around a lot of aircraft and a lot of uh, resources and assets. You're driving heavily armored vehicles. So to be doing so on your sixth or seventh day of a 16, 17 hour day is, is no bueno, as they say. So you've got to take care of yourself. You know, you've got to get down to the, the physics of, of, of rest, uh, eating well, eating healthy, uh, and take an approach that makes you really capable of what you're supposed to be doing. And it is hard. You know, you've got to have you got to have appropriate time down. But okay, that, that sounds good. But when you have just had, as an example, the attack on 9/11, there's no downtime. Uh, every, everybody is going fast and furious, and I think everybody. A lot of people burned out at that particular time at different organizations and even our first responders. So, um, you know, everybody was part of that. But you bring up a good point. It is important. Um, and I'll speak, you know, on a point of Mr. Tenet. I don't know how he did it. I, I even wrote about it in my book. It seemed like the guy was never sleeping. I don't know how he did it. Uh, you're talking to somebody who's worked about seven, eight years at the agency. And we would have reasons to, to, to be, I think he even mentioned it, you know, we, we had a, an operations center in, in his basement and, you know, you could hear him walking the floor at night at two or three o'clock in the morning because he can't sleep. And then you'd have the operation room uh, at the situation room here at the white house or the, the CIA's situation room may call him because they need to talk to him at two or three o'clock in the morning because something going on overseas or he needs to read a cable. And it's, 
it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to shut it down. So I don't know how he did it. And sometimes as agents, we would shift shifts at eight or 10 or 12 hours after we picked him up as an example at 630 in the morning or seven to go down the White House to do the presidential daily brief to President Bush wanted to have him there personally. If you think about that, you know, there's, there's presidential daily briefers and these are individuals that go and brief the uh, certain cabinet level people and, and members of Congress of the what happened in the last 24 hours. And this information has been put together overnight. And then next morning, guys and gals go out to, to do the briefing. A president wanted to see George Tenet every morning at that briefing. And that's an unusual request. Uh, so for him to be up at 536, getting him down to the White House and and then to have a shift change where well, the agents are doing a shift change after 8, 10, 12 hours, but he's still going strong. Uh, it is amazing. And you think, you know, he's he's making a, a government salary, but with all of that responsibility, uh, I don't think people truly understand what it's like to be in that particular role. It is a major, major sacrifice and a stressor. But uh at the end of the day, we only have one life to live, and you have to take care of the one you have. And physical fitness, uh, you know, meditation, you know, whatever it is to help you to come down from the high of of the job you're on, you have to have it. You gotta you gotta eat well and get plenty of sleep and all those things that we know to do. Oh, absolutely. Those are all important things. And and on that note, I can remember working as a as a young professional in my mid-20s for an individual who was in his mid-70s. And he was notorious for being first in and first out of the office on a daily basis. And then on top of that, he was also rumored to do 80 push-ups each morning. And I tell you, somebody like that quickly becomes a motivating factor for you to raise your own game because you really have no excuse to be tired or complaining when you're leaps and bounds younger than the person you're working for. And that individual is still managing to run rings around everybody else in the office. I would imagine it was a similar feeling during your experience over at CIA. It was the same way, for sure, 100%. And again, year after year after year, it's one thing to kind of be on that run for a couple of years, but, you know, still my hat is off to him. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And just because you saw what he did every day and how it affected him, and and, um, he took the job very seriously. But um, yeah, um, I, I don't know how he did it physically. I really don't. Now, Mike, while you were at CIA traveling, either ahead of or with the director as he traversed the globe, passing through different hotspots, and I'm sure more than your fair share of high-threat environments, were there little things that you collected along the way that you later learned paid large dividends in your ability to protect your team and keep your principal, director, tenant safe? Uh, for sure, because someone like the you know, a CIA director or anybody who's at the agency that you might be protecting, you have to automatically be aware of the risk of espionage or, uh, you know, obviously assassination is always, you know, a potential risk factor. Um, it varies based on principle. But, um, you know, what you do develop, especially maybe those who come out of the agency, and I've always felt this way because I know a lot of guys that are now in senior positions on their uh, private sector who came from the agency and, you know, we, we all cut our teeth in the same place. I will, and it's not to make a uh, disrespectful mark about anybody else, but my personal opinion, the guys that come out of the agency, the guys and gals that came out of the agency to do this work are some of the best in the business because they have to operate with a reduced amount of resources at time. Again, we weren't sitting with a thousand uh, special agents for the Secret Service to protect the president, what he needs, but you're a much smaller detailed team. Um, you have to be flexible and nimble and you have to put on many hats. So because of that, because you wear a lot of different hats, your skill set, it gets pretty deep. And then your situation awareness. Um, when you're overseas in a location with this kind of principle, you you better be in tune to every moving part where I could be with a different kind of principal, the risk factors are different. And if we're in New York or we're in some place, yes, I'm concerned about his safety. I'm watching out for all those things that we should to to make sure that they don't trip and fall, that they have, you know, what it is they need for the next meeting, that uh, if they're, you know, it's just paparazzi around, you may have to deal with that. And so yeah, you're you're always on on the you know on the ready, if you will. But when you have somebody that's uh, that is at government level official that has a high level of threat it's your own high alert from the time you leave your hotel room to to go do your job till you get back at that night and even then i can remember you know many knocks on the door at the hotel room that hey we've got a problem we've got a concern 
and you may be right back out again after you just took your clothes off and got in bed. So there's really never much of a downtime in some of those circumstances. So I think to your point, your situation awareness and your mindset are two portions of what it is that, that drives us to do this kind of work. Those two are on, on a very high alert. Uh, your mindset has to be right. And your situation awareness has to be at an extremely high level. And some of these things you see just don't make sense. And you're constantly, you're your own computer, if you will, of processing what you're seeing, trying to determine, if, is this of a concern? Is this a risk? Um, do I share it with somebody else? Um, you know, you're constantly processing. So those are probably the two factors, I think, that you really have to sharpen those particular two skills. Yeah, you know, that's interesting to hear from you, Mike. And and uh, I'd like to take a moment to build on that here. You've authored some editorials on the topic of fear, and I know it's also addressed in your book. And you've discussed it as a motivation. If you could, I'd like for you to elaborate on this concept a little bit more for our audience and anybody who's listening that may be encountering this right now or may eventually run into it in the future. Fear is a, is a fascinating topic, as, as you know. Um it's, it's something we, we learn at a pretty early age growing up, uh, especially after we've, you know, we've hurt ourselves or we've sustained some sort of aha moment. It's the hand on the, the eye of the stove, like, wow, that really hurt. I'm not going to do that again. So wherever we begin to build our expectations and our understanding of fear is interesting to me. You know, there's been quite a few people that have written about the topic of fear. I personally well, you have to respect fear because it can be a motivator and it should be a motivator. If I'm in a burning building, I should have fear of my, my that I may lose my life and I want to get out of that building. So I'm going to use fear as that motiva- motivation. But what I feel sometimes is we use fear as an emotion to make irrational decisions. And that can a lot of times apply to the level of protection that we feel we need based on that level of fear. And there's different perspectives on that fear. And it's, it's, you know, it's, I can think of many principles that within the family that we're protecting, there'll be different levels of fear. Some individuals are not seeing the same concern and they have no fear for a particular topic when the other person of the family is definitely concerned about it and may even be scared. So how do you provide that level of protection for two principles of the same family? They have a different opinion about what is, what is fear. So that it gets complicated. And then, you know, I do talk about the fact that you should take the information that is leading you to be concerned, or maybe you are beginning to feel that fear factor. Take that information and, and take it take it internally, take it to the team, uh, take it to maybe other experts and figure out, take that and turn it into information and then take that information to drive your decision what the outcome is. But if you're constantly walking around afraid of everything, that's not a life that anybody really wants to be a part of, or, or it's a difficult principle to protect when they're afraid of everything. And so now some psychology gets involved to try to help them. And that's probably not the role of the protector. Uh, it's probably more of a psychologist or somebody else to help assist them. Uh, but I've even had that conversations with, with family members to, to help <laughs> bring in somebody to help them deal with those kinds of fears and anxieties. Uh, today, we do see a lot of principals that do have a lot of anxieties that are related to fears. Uh, and that will definitely determine what kind of program you have and how you manage that, even to the point to where we have, we have operators that come out of extremely high threat environments and in transition to private sector protective details that try to bring what I consider the over overprotective model. You know, if you're coming out of Afghanistan or Iraq or some other high-risk areas and you're used to protecting somebody in that environment, uh, sure, you've operated at a particular high level. But then to take that and try to try to translate that to a, a low-level CEO or an individual who doesn't have that kind of profile or risk or threat but wants or has a desire or they want to pay for that protection, protection is not going to be at the same level that you were operating at before. But we see that far too often, that over level of protection. Um, and that's a that's another topic we could 
we could dive into, but that is a something we see far too often, I think. You are so right on this, Mike, and especially from the protectee's perspective, it's so important to set them up with an understanding of their actual risk instead of working off of a perceived or unfounded level of risk they may feel they have. This can be done with a risk assessment that easily explains their level of actual risk Mm -hmm. and then comes with plenty of benefits for them as well as your team, specifically allowing you to avoid unnecessarily burning out your team members over an extended period of time protecting against an incorrect perceived level of risk. And that's a good point, Ron, because a lot of of teams, you know, you may take programs that like, you know, it may be because of budget or maybe just the fact that they don't want to spend over, you know, whatever that amount is. So you've got three or four or five people uh, trying to provide a level of, of protection that you really warranted for a team of twice that size. You're not going to sustain that level of protection for that principle uh, with with less bodies. I mean, you can always scale up and scale down, but you're if you don't start it right, it's not going to end right. Um, and I use kind of what I refer to as a safe approach. I, I talk about that in the book, and that's a program that is uh, that is designed to be sustainable, uh, acceptable, flexible, and effective. If you kind of add those four categories into your program, um, you know, even on a basic level, you'll, you'll cover the four areas that will get you off to a decent start. Um, but if one of those three you know, four to me, that's like the legs of a chair. If one of those are, are not correct, uh, you're going to wobble. You're going to problem. You're going to have a problem. So sustainability is a big part of that. Uh, guys can't work seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. It's not sustainable. So your program approach started out wrong and it's not going to be acceptable to the principal or, or the, the guys that you've hired to do this. Um, if there's no flexibility within a program because you are going to have to scale up and scale down and uh, you're going to have to have, have a level of flexibility in your program. And then you see a lot of people that are using methods or a uh, program approach that's not, a, it's not effective. So if it's not effective, why are you using it? Why are you doing that? So um, anyway, I think if, if you think about those four terms, uh, sustainable, acceptable, flexible, and effective, uh, and take that safe approach, you'll, you'll at least be on a good start uh, with your program. That's a great bit of advice there, Mike. And now as we start to finish up our discussion today, there's a topic I'd like to address before we go. And it's something you've spoken to in previous interviews and even addressed in your book. And this is the addition of technology into the executive protection landscape. And while I read your book, I I had to remind myself that you operated in a world that was vastly different than the one I even grew up in. And that most people entering the profession today grew up using a cell phone for everything, whether it was directions or to answer any number of questions. I think there's a lot to be said about the way guys like yourself managed to operate previous to the addition of a powerful smartphone, Mm -hmm. which has really just become a mobile computer at this point. Could you perhaps speak to the double-edged sword of technology as it relates to executive protection? Yeah, sure. I think you you coined it right as a double-edged sword. I mean, for sure, the, the advancement of technology today is amazing. I mean, when you think about the smartphone, uh, and to your point, when I was in Germany doing this work in the late 80s, you know, no, I didn't even have, I didn't think we had cell phones until probably right around probably 80, 88, 89, 90 on our detail. So now to be walking with a smartphone that does mind-blowing, um, you know, you're basically a rolling command post with that phone. It's fantastic. It's great. You know, the GPS, I, I get it. it. It's hard to live without it now. But I've also seen witnessed and, and just kind of gotten frustrated with people who lean so much on that technology that when it's not there, they literally almost, it's like getting a spinning wheel on your, your, your Mac when you just, <laughs> your computer's not working because it's just, you're getting that wheel of death and you're like, okay, it's, it's froze, froze up or it's not working right. I've seen operators do the same thing because their technology is not working. And uh, so whether it's your radio communication, your cell phone, because you're so dependent on it, uh, GPS is not working, uh, being in a location where you drop the signal. Now you've got to rely on the old, you know, sort of internal directional device of where we're turning next and where we're going next. Um, and just the fact that, you know, I don't think there's anybody listening here that doesn't realize how much time you spend looking down at your device. And for a protectee, looking down is, uh, again, it's no bueno your eyes are supposed to be up. You're, you're looking at what's around you. Uh, I do mention a scenario in the book where a principal was robbed um, at, uh, walking the streets of New York where his protectees were behind him. And literally it was seconds before they realized it. 
that uh, something had been stolen because they weren't paying attention. Uh, they were looking at their devices. Uh, so it is a double-edged sword. You got to know when to use it, when not to use it. And sometimes you may have to sign, you know, certain people. Uh, if you're using the technology, you're, you're researching, you're, uh, you're paying attention to some reports, then, you know, somebody on the team is, that's their job. Uh, but the guys that are close to the principal, you're not paying attention to that. You're paying attention to the principal and the situation awareness around you. So technology is great. I love it. I, I can't imagine being without it now, but we have to know how to, I think, too often we take shortcuts too. I know back in the day that I would do my advance if I was driving a principal. I'll probably go out maybe twice and actually drive that same route, same time of day that I'm going to be taking the principal. I want to know, you know, what's what's the traffic light. I want to know the feel of it. Um, you know, coming out of Germany with, with Herrhausen attack, the assassination that killed Herrhausen, and the roadside bomb, and I was with my principal 20 minutes away, and our principal was on that same hit list. You react a little bit differently now. You know, now you're you're looking for things that are out of place, and I'm not looking at my device to tell me that. I'm looking with my eyes. So those things haven't changed, but we we do have too many distractions today, and you have to be a disciplined person to to know when to pay attention to the technology and when to pay attention to the you know the God given those senses to pay attention. And sometimes that device is not going to tell you that. And uh, so it's good good to have them both. You know, you got to be able to. To, to blend both in, and it's the human resources we have as well as our technology. Uh, I'd love to have that technology we have today back in, you know, the 80s and early 90s. Um, I remember I was at the CIA for a, uh, an event they had just a few years ago, and it was a recognition of a, a newly um, branded entity within the agency doing the protection for the director and deputy director. And they had this... Uh, uh, event for a couple of days, and they invited quite a few of us back to be part of the event. And during one of the sessions, we had a agent who was on the uh, on the uh, platform, if you will, talking about his time at the agency, like in the late fifties, early sixties, as an agent on the protective detail. And then we had we had four other people on the panel all the way up until the current day, which was just a few years ago. And so they're talking about the difference between. You know, when he came aboard and his 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 tools were a 38 revolver and a flashlight. And if I didn't forget it, my ink pen. Wow, Mike, I'm starting to get some Fred Burton vibes. <laughs> Fred's not that old. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're talking, you know, some very, you know, from the time that what he was telling me, nothing probably changed in 100 years. And that's kind of what he had. No armored car. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't carrying a machine gun, even though they had him at that time. Uh, but his day-to-day weapon was a 38 with, you know, extra six rounds and a, and a, and a ink pen and a flashlight. And then you got the guys on the other side of the stage talking about the weaponry, the armored vehicles, the, you know, the drones, the, just a list of things. And I could see this guy looking down and just like, he's thinking, holy crap, you know, number one, I can't imagine working in that environment today. And then you could see the guys on the other end going, how did, you do, how did you do that job with a, a 38, an ink pen, and a, a flashlight? So somewhere in the middle of all of that, there's a good combination of the human skills and the technology. And, uh, you know, if you take our older generation that can't accept some of that technology, then you're going to lose out on some of those really cool skills or those, those uh, cool technology that can help you do your job better and more effective. At the same time, you can take some of the newer generation who's depending so much on technology that I'm going to walk up behind you and slap you on the side of the head because you weren't paying attention to what you should have been you know, paying attention to because it was more important to see what was the latest, you know, tweet or, or what was on Facebook or I'm waiting for this, you know, this, uh, this uh, app to reload or, you know, maybe, yes, maybe the SOC sent you a document and that you need to be looking at it because it's for the trip, but not while you're with the principal. Uh, so there's a time and place for everything and, it's, it's a very interesting conversation. Again, you could probably talk about that over a, over a good bottle of scotch all day long. Oh, absolutely. And I think the cornerstone of that conversation right there is uh, that at the end of the day, devices fail. Technology can fail, usually at the worst time. <laughs> but if there is something we can take from 
the operators a generation before and even a couple generations back is that when you take everything away, you can still find a way to push through tough environments with limited resources in a way to still conquer your objectives. For sure. And a little example of that. I remember I was at the agency and we did it. You know, we had cell phones at that time. We were, we were talking, you know, the early 90s, like mid 90s at the time. And uh, we would travel internationally with cell phones. But one of the newer team members who had kind of grown up with not really operating as much without cell phones as just a good example. And we were overseas. And I remember a scenario where our communication, our cell phone was not working. And we had to make some calls. Uh, something that was kind of time sensitive. And literally, I thought he was going to explode. He was like, Oh, my God, the phone's not working. What are we going to do? And he was struggling with, with trying to figure it out. And I'm like, Dude, we're gonna pull. We're gonna pull over, and we're gonna walk into an office, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna use somebody's landline phone to make the call. And he's like, "Okay, you know, he was just. I could see it in his eyes because he had just never, you know, either operated a payphone or slid into a hotel and say somebody behind the desk, "Hey, can I borrow your phone for a second? It's, it was just that thought process because he's always had that in his hand, and it, I was like, "Wow." Okay, that's interesting. Um, so you can get so used to the technology that you forget how to operate without it. And it does concern me a little bit today. Yeah, it's, it, it definitely causes you to, to, to rely on all of your, you know, your, your, your sort of your basic human training, you know, without all that. There's a, there's a military training course and another, some organizations that use this training course. And it would, it would take an individual and put them into circumstance to where they stripped them down of all of their technology, their money, their billfold, their license, everything. And I'll put you in a situation in, let's say, Arizona, and, and you've got to be in another location in, let's call it New York or Vermont in, in 36 hours. But you have no resources, nor can you use any of the technology resources. So I will see you there in 36 hours. And how are you going to get there? It, you know, it really requires you to think outside the box of, you know, you know whether you're going to steal something or whether you're going to acquire something, whether you're going to slip into an office and use other resources, whatever those skill sets are, and I can't get into it. But it really makes you reach deep down and get into your uncomfortable zone of how I'm going to figure out how to accomplish it without the tools that I typically have in my bag or my back pocket or my hand. And um, I think you're right. I think it would be good to see more EP courses challenge uh, our operators to operate without all those technology components just a little bit just so you can kind of feel what it was like to stress with, with my phone not working or you know some technology that's part of my car not working properly how do I, how do I get around it how do I work around it um we should get back to that just a little bit oh mike i think you're absolutely right and uh man that would be a, a very interesting and wonderful training to take part in you know perhaps we can uh, convince our sponsors today over at pfc training to uh, develop or resurrect a kind of murphy's law type of course in which they throw everything and the kitchen sink right at us oh i'd be especially interested to see kind of what ingenuity and out-of-the-box thinking kind of leads to uh the development of new sops during a training like that i think they would do that because i know brian steve and the guys over there they would definitely uh, take that on as a, as a unique challenge. Oh, Mike, I'm sure they would. And, and I wouldn't mind one bit being that guinea pig millennial <laughs> running around looking like a fool trying to muddle my way around their training. And so uh, to segue off that conversation, as you know, it's not always a lack of technology that brings with it timely out of the box thinking, but also major time constraints. And uh, it reminds me of a story you share in your book. Again, I'm not going to spoil it for uh, the readers if they choose to go out and grab your book. Um, but you managed to get yourself from point A to point Z in a very limited time frame without the use of traditional agency resources. And boy, let me tell you, that story had me at the edge of my seat while I was traveling at 30,000 feet, just wondering how and if you were going to make it to your destination in time. I'm sure you know exactly which story I'm alluding to, and uh, I'm just going to leave the suspense uh, for our readers here. Yeah, I was. Uh, that's a day you'll never forget, or 24 hours for sure. You know, and to your point, you know, to get from point A to point B without the resources and have to include a uh, a Gulfstream uh, jet into that it was a lot of fun. Oh, and Mike, when I was reading through your book the first time, I I got to the story and I sent an excerpt of this to a mentor of mine, retired Air Force General Scott George, who sadly has since passed away. Mm -hmm. And uh, he immediately called me laughing at the sheer hilarity of your story. And uh, 
at the means that you managed to make it to your destination on time. But that's a good example. Again, you, you know, and at that time, I wasn't sure how I was going to accomplish that to my point being, you know, you, you have to really begin to think quickly on your feet. But uh, yeah, to your point, I won't blow the story either. But it's, um, it was definitely as I, th- I think I coined in a book, it was an advanced not to ever forget. Um, but uh, no, those are good times. That's what, you know, those little things create those little tools that you put in your toolbox for the next time. Um, and I, quite a few unique tools that came out of that, uh, that event. Oh, Mike, I'm sure you've carried these lessons learned with you ever since, and I have no doubt they've paid dividends later on. Now, as we wrap up our conversation today, the book is called The Protected, and it's authored by our guest, Michael Trott. Mike, is there a place where uh, our listeners can find your book with ease? Yep. If you go to theprotected.us is the book website, and there's a link that takes you straight to, to Amazon. Uh, or Barnes and Noble or some of the other places, but uh, Amazon's probably the easy button. Oh, awesome, Mike. And uh, for those of you interested in taking a look at his website, it's filled with editorials, little snippets of his book, and uh, many other little informational goodies. So that's a wrap for us today, Mike. It was wonderful having you on the program. If there's one thing I learned during our discussion, it's that we need to have you back in the future because there's plenty more to dig on these topics and more. So we look forward to getting that scheduled up and having you back on. Ron, my pleasure. And again, congratulations on on your first one here. I'm glad to be part of that first jump off. And uh, I got a feeling you're going to be doing a lot more of these and you're entering into an interesting space here. And uh, the topics I'm I'm sure will get more and more interesting as well as the different uh, people you have on. But uh, congratulations to you and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Mike. And from all of us here at Global Security and Protection Group, I want to thank you again for sharing your time with us. And for our listeners today, thank you for joining us for a conversation on executive protection with Michael Trott. A dedication. Today's episode is dedicated to the family of Brigadier General retired Scott George. Scott passed away on June 28, 2020, and is survived by his wife, Barbara, three sons, Ian Robert, Calvin Scott, and Ryan Kennedy, along with four siblings and a loving extended family. He served as a NASIC commander from June 2008 to June 2010 and retired from service as the deputy director of the National Security Agency after nearly 30 years of distinguished and devoted service to his country in the United States Air Force. Scott continued to protect this nation during the years of his retirement as the founder of Black Knight Cybersecurity International, where I had the pleasure to have him as a boss, a mentor, and most importantly, a close friend. The Global Security and Protection Group was developed following years of talks, and the idea of pairing our security company with a podcast was originally his idea. We here at GSPG will do our part to keep Scott's legacy in all we do in the years to come. My team and I thank you for your time and support as listeners of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Scott, we think about you often, and thank you for the wisdom you instilled in so many of the people you met during your years with us. Until next time, my friend, we will take it from here.